We're continuing in our study in the Gospel of John, and as we already read together, John chapter 12 is where we start today. Last week, we saw the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. <clears throat> this morning, uh, as we continue, we see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the last time he will enter Jerusalem before his crucifixion. So he's entering for the last time uh, before his death. We've seen him sort of come and go during festival seasons and whatever. But now he comes in, and John recounts for us uh, this idea of a triumphal entry. And it's funny to even call it a triumphal entry because it is purposefully not that triumphal. I mean, when we think about a grand entrance, we think about red carpets, we think about pomp and circumstance. Maybe you picture the royal wedding with all of the horses and the chariots and the, you know, whatever. This is, uh, this is very humble on purpose, but, but the humility of it is, is very strategic. It's not only a representation of who Christ is, but it's also the confirmation of a prophecy. I want us to see that as we begin this morning. It says here in John chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Uh, so they, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. I mean, this is a, this is a big proclamation. They're proclaiming that he's the king of Israel. Part of this is a quote from Psalm 118. Part of it is typical celebratory uh, language. But this crowd, uh, John tells us where the crowd comes from. So look at verses 17 and 18. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So John gives us a little bit of, a, of an arrow pointing to where does this crowd come from? The crowd with the palm branches, the ones that are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the very king of Israel. Well, the way in which that crowd was generated isn't simply that Jesus has a ton of favor in Jerusalem. We know that he doesn't have a ton of favor in Jerusalem. In fact, most of the people in this particular crowd were probably travelers. It says that the small group of people who were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead continued to bear witness to what they'd seen and heard. And so because of their testimony, because they were telling people, hey, you're not going to believe what we witnessed. Lazarus was dead four days. He walked out of the tomb. We've never seen anything like it. Because of their testimony, there's this ripple that kind of goes out. And as a result, there is a crowd that's gathered to see this Jesus, to celebrate him, and to call him out as the king of Israel. Now, again and again in the, in the study of John, we've seen Jesus kind of dodge uh, the people that want to make him king or want to declare him king. And every time he sort of dodges that, he does it because of his assertion that it's not the right time. What's interesting here as we read, the, the crowd comes out and says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus comes into Jerusalem to the accolades of this crowd riding on the back of a donkey. I don't know if you've ever seen a grown man on a donkey, but it's not that spectacular. In fact, if you want to have some fun this afternoon, spend some time going down the rabbit hole of a Google search that says, grown man on a donkey. That's a pretty fun one, right? So check that out this afternoon. Uh, it's, uh, donkeys are small, and they're not that spectacular. I myself have never ridden on a donkey, but I did drive a Ford Escort for a little while when I was in high school, and uh, I imagine that the two experiences are very similar. The Escort was white, it had a pink, like a pink racing stripe, and I always felt a little bit embarrassed to be going wherever I was going in that Ford Escort. The Ford Escort is to uh, maybe the, you know, the Ford Mustang, as the donkey is to the war horse, right? Jesus doesn't come in on a giant charger, he doesn't come in on a powerful animal, 
This is the only place, by the way, in the scripture that we see Jesus riding anything. He rides the donkey as a demonstration of his humility, but not only that, as a fulfillment of the prophecy that's quoted here from Zechariah 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, in a messianic passage, it says this, Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10, say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah foretold that the king of Israel would come and that he wouldn't come on a war horse. In fact, he would come bringing peace with him and that he would come humble and mounted on the colt of a donkey. Jesus finds a donkey, it tells us in John uh, 12, 14. He finds the donkey to embrace what the people have said. The people have said, here he is, the king of Israel. And Jesus gets on a donkey, in essence, to say, you've got it right. I am the one that was foretold. We haven't seen him do this in so many terms before. Jesus gets on the donkey as a way to affirm that he is the king of peace, that he is the king that's bringing salvation and righteousness, but that comes in humility. He's asserting that what they have declared is accurate. He's saying, I am, in fact, the king. That's why he comes in on the donkey. It's also a declaration to the people of the kind of rule that he will bring. It's not a pomp and circumstance kind of rule. It's not an arrogant kind of rule. It is an understated rule. It is a humble rule. Look at what happens next. The people come in. We already read, uh, well, 16, John gives us a little inside information. He says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees, verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you were gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Remember, the Pharisees were trying to squash the ministry of Jesus. They were trying to suppress it. They were trying to minimize his influence. They were trying to kill him. And so they see this crowd of people waving their palm branches, Jesus on the donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9, the people saying, you are our king. And the Pharisees look at each other and they say, oh, you know, our efforts have been wasted. The whole world is going to Jesus. Now, It's a gross overstatement to say the whole world is going to him. This is a small crowd. Like I said, likely not even the people of Jerusalem, but people that have been traveling on the road. But there is still a sense in the Pharisees' mind that there are all kinds of people going to Jesus, that they themselves are losing their influence and that he is growing in influence. And if to emphasize the reality of what they've even sort of inadvertently said, so they're they're grumbling to themselves, everybody's going to Jesus, John says, while we're on that topic, let me share with you an interesting story. And in that very same context, then we see a group of Greeks coming who want to see Jesus. The Pharisees have said, the world has gone after him. Look at this in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. I'd want to just stop for a second and listen to the question they ask. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus, some translations say. I've been in places where that's inscribed on the pulpit. We don't really have a pulpit here. We just have this little stand, but you you could kind of etch it in there. We would see Jesus. It's the cry of the heart of every man and woman. It is the one thing that every person on the planet needs, whether they know it or not. 
It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what we need more than anything else in this world is a clear view of Christ. And these Greeks come, these Gentile worshipers of Yahweh have come, likely to the court of the Gentiles to worship. Uh, the, the Synoptic Gospels will tell us that this same time period, after the triumphal entry, it's the same time period when Jesus cleansed the temple for the second time. That it's the same period of time when he cleansed the court of the Gentiles of the money changers, right? So Jesus ostensibly clears the court of the Gentiles, and then these Gentile worshipers who were there come to Philip. Now, they come to Philip because he's got a Greek name, and he's from Bethsaida, which was sort of a very Greek-influenced city. They come to Philip, and they go, we want to see him. And they don't mean they just want to look at him with their eyes. They mean we want to interact with this Jesus, We've heard these stories about Lazarus. We've seen him clear out the temple courts. What's going on? We want to get near him, right? We want to see him. We'd like an audience with him. And Philip, in typical Christian form, you know, he has to take everything through committee. So Philip goes to Andrew, and then Andrew finally goes to Jesus. There's always a bunch of steps, right, to get anything done. They come to Philip and they say, sir, we we want to see Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew. Andrew goes to Jesus and says, there are some Greeks here who want to see you. And here's what's interesting. We don't necessarily see Jesus address the Greeks. We don't know whether he interacted with them directly or not, but the coming of the Greeks is a catalyst. It's like a trigger in the heart of Jesus because what follows here in Jesus' response, look at it with me, if you will, in verse 23. Philip told Andrew, verse 22, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. In 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Son of Man, that's a title that Jesus himself used frequently, a title that he loved. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you've been with us in this study of John, you know that there have been all kinds of places where Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. It's not the right time. We saw it in John chapter 2, remember, when he says to his mother at the wedding feast, it isn't my hour, it's not my time. In John chapter 4, it says that his hour had not come. In John chapter 7, we saw that they couldn't arrest him because his hour had not come. Again in John 8, they couldn't arrest him because his hour had not come. So it's very significant here in John chapter 12 that when Philip and Andrew come and they say, hey, there are some Greeks here, there are some Gentile worshipers who've come and they want to they meet you. That that arrival of the Greeks is the catalyst, it's the trigger, it sets off fireworks in Jesus' head and he goes, that's it, that's what I've been waiting for, this is the moment, my hour has come, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's pretty cool that the trigger for the hour's arrival is the arrival of people outside of Israel. That it's the arrival of the world at his doorstep. The very thing the Pharisees were nervous about a few verses back, that the whole world was coming to him, that in the arrival of these Greeks, Jesus sees a catalyst for his walk to the crucifixion. You see, his entrance into Jerusalem isn't just a visit to the city. This is Jesus walking to the cross. And so he looks at Philip and Andrew and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you, were, if you were listening in on that conversation, you might get really excited, especially if you were expecting Jesus to be a conquering king, if you were expecting him to overthrow the Roman government, if you were expecting him to ride the war horse, right? When he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, you might be like, yeah, I imagine there's kind of a ripple through the crowd. He's going to push the donkey out of the way and he's going to get on the mighty, powerful steed, right? He's gonna get rid of the Ford Escort and move into something more glorious, right? Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and I would imagine that those who were within earshot thought, oh, this is about to get awesome, right? He's about to, you know, shoot lasers out of his eyes. He's gonna do something spectacular. It's the time for him to be glorified. We talk about glory, by the way, 
We talk about glory quite a bit because the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We talk about glory. The idea of glorifying God is simply to ascribe to him the worth that he is due. It's simply acknowledging who he is and what he's worthy of. Jesus says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And while we might immediately associate that glorification with pomp and circumstance, with military power, with the display of his miraculous might, I want you to see the line that Jesus draws. Because no sooner has he said the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified than he goes into a long conversation or a speech, a declaration about death and sacrifice. Jesus draws a straight, direct line between the glorification of the Son of Man and death. Look at it with me, if you will. Back to John chapter 12. John 12, 23. Jesus answered him, answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus says, the hour uh, uh, for me to be glorified is upon us, and if a seed doesn't die, if a kernel of wheat doesn't go into the ground and die, it remains alone. It remains solitary. It's only in death that much fruit is produced. Jesus draws a direct line. It's, It's not that the Son of Man will be glorified through the morality of the Jewish people or through their righteousness, not even through their celebration and their waving of the palm branches. Jesus is not glorified through their celebration or through their morality. He's not glorified through the intellectual uh, you know, observations of the Greeks. In fact, Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here's what I want you to miss, or I don't want you to miss this morning. That would be a terrible mistake, right? You miss all that stuff about the Ford Escort, right? Sacrifice and death is the key that unlocks the glory of God. Sacrifice and death is the key that unlocks the glory of God. He draws a straight line between the glorification of the Son of Man and death. And he doesn't just talk about his own death. Watch the way that speech translates. In John chapter 12, as he talks, he goes from talking about his own sacrifice to inviting us in to be like him, inviting us into sacrifice, inviting us into service, inviting us into a death of our own. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is that this is the way that God is glorified. It is the key that unlocks his glory and in turn in our discipleship as well. And I'll tell you, this is hard for us because we sort of want to skip past the cross and go straight to the tomb, don't we? That empty tomb, we love that empty tomb. We celebrated it on Easter a few weeks ago and we love celebrating the redemption and the restoration. Resurrection's the best. That we're gonna have resurrection life that there'll be no more crying and no more tears and no more pain. He will redeem it all. We love to celebrate God's ability to resurrect us. But Jesus does not want us to look past the cross. He doesn't want us to look away from the cross. We sometimes are tempted to look away from it because it's bloody, because it's humiliating, because it's painful, because it's difficult. 
We want to look past the cross and go, yeah, 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 that's a gross moment, but look at the resurrection. Look at that empty tomb. And Jesus would look at us this morning and say, look at the cross. Because the cross, this death, this sacrifice is the key to unlocking my glory. The Son of Man will be glorified by laying down his life. And he gives us these principles. There are four things I want you to see in his sermon here that, that apply to each and every one of us. The first one is the one he says there in 24. He says in John chapter 12, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We get this about seeds, right? Seeds are like, essentially, a seed is just potential encapsulated, right? A seed isn't really anything to look at. It's not that spectacular to observe. A seed is just potential, And you can understand that it's potential. You can understand that a seed has the ability to produce all kinds of things, but it's not until you turn loose of that seed. It's not until you put it in the ground. It's not until you bury it and you lose it that it has the ability to produce. I'm sure there are some of you in this room who've been told time and time again about how much potential you have, right? About how much character you have, how much potential you have. Though You'll be able to go all these incredible places, right? We've just gone through uh, graduation season, and it feels like during graduation season that everybody wants to tell us all the places we'll go, right? Potential's great, but potential is worthless if it's never realized. Does that make sense? We cannot live on potential alone. You take a seed and you set it on a shelf and it's a waste of space. A seed only becomes realized. Its potential only matters when you lose the seed, when you abandon the seed. Jesus says the same thing about our lives. What's he saying? Die to yourself. Die to yourself. You have all kinds of potential. You were built with all kinds of potential. But unless you die to yourself, that potential will go nowhere. You will remain solitary and alone. Just one, one seed that has potential but goes nowhere. And it's when you lose yourself that then much fruit is produced. He calls us to die to ourselves. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Don't you love the fact that Jesus laid down his life for you? I mean, we revel in that, that the king of the universe would come and lay down his life for us. It's the best, right? High fives all around. But, but well, I should lay down my life? I, I should lay down my life? No, no, no. Everything in our world is geared towards telling me I need to take care of my life. I got to look out for my life. I got to protect my life. I got to preserve it. I got to enjoy my life. I got to milk everything out of my life I can. I, I'm not supposed to lay it down. I'm glad Jesus did that. First John chapter 3 says, he laid down his life and we should lay down our lives. Jesus calls us to die, to take the seed that is our potential and to invest it, that it would grow and produce fruit. Not only does he call us to die to ourselves in John chapter 12, but look at verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The second thing he calls us to is to hate this worldly life. Now, I want to be careful here. He's not talking about self-hate, right? He's not saying you need to look in the mirror and go, I'm ugly and stupid and nobody likes me and I'm not good for anything and I'm just a waste of space. He's not talking about self-hate because God created you with potential. He created you good. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He's not talking about hating yourself. It says whoever doesn't hate life in this world. What's he talking about? Worldly life. The value system of the culture in which we live that says that what matters is money and power and fame and prestige and influence. 
The value system of this world, Jesus says if you cling to those things, that's all you'll ever have. You cling to this worldly life and that is all you will ever have, but when you turn loose of this worldly life and you turn away from it, then you gain life eternal. He calls us to lay it down, to invest our lives, to invest this potential to die and to hate this worldly life. It says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25 and following, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? We've all thought it through, right? You've, you've evaluated this before, like what is my life worth? What's the point of it? Is it just about collecting stuff? Is it just about collecting experiences? Is it just about people looking at me and being impressed? Is it just about feeling good? Is it just about amassing wealth? Jesus says, if you hold on to those things, that's all you'll ever have. But when you turn loose of them, there is so much more. He calls us to die to ourselves, to hate this worldly life. Not only that, let's continue to look in John chapter 12. He calls us to serve. To serve. It says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. He's talking about service and followership, right? Service and discipleship eventually, or or essentially. But service, right? We all love to be served. There isn't a person in the room who doesn't like it when somebody else does the dishes, right? We love to be served. We understand that that is like a universal love language for everybody. We love it when somebody else mows the grass. We love it when somebody else lets us get in line in front of them. Or even though they got to the restaurant first, they let us take the first seat, right? That's awesome. We love to be served. We don't necessarily like to serve though, right? And yet Jesus modeled service. He lived a life of service and he didn't just model it, he modeled it and then said, I've done this to set you an example that you would serve one another. The entire incarnation is an act of service, right? And so once again, in the same way that we like, you know, we like our lives and we like all of these things and we don't want to lay them down, we don't necessarily want to serve, we want to be served. But Paul says clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I love that verse. His evangelistic strategy, the way Paul seeks to reach the world with the gospel is by serving everyone, choosing enslavement. Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and that happens through death to self. It happens to a hatred of this worldly life. It happens through service of Christ, living a life to serve him and that service is following him. It's funny, when I was a kid, I don't know if they still sing this, but when I was a kid they used to sing that song, uh, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, like a little Sunday school song, I have decided, you know that song, right? Maybe not, doesn't matter. I didn't do it justice just then. But I remember singing that song for all it was worth. But as a little kid, I don't think you really think about what it means to follow Jesus. To follow him? You know where he went, right? He went up a hill and he was nailed to a cross. They pulled out his beard. His blood was poured out on the ground for people who spat in his face. Think about that the next time you sing that cute little song, right? All the kids would be crying in Sunday school. (laughs) We've decided to follow Jesus. But that's what following him means. Have you thought about where he went? Have you thought about how he lived? I think if I were to say to you this morning rhetorically, how many of you want to follow Jesus? I think we'd probably get every hand because that's the right way to answer in church. But if you really look at the core of who we are, how many of you want to follow Jesus? The answer would be sparse because it's hard. 
He says, serve me, follow me. Hate this worldly life. Die to yourself. You guys, this isn't easy. This isn't easy. Jesus himself recognizes that it isn't easy. Look at the verses that follow. Look at 27. It says, now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. There may be some of you who are squirming in your seats this morning because we're talking about sacrifice, because we're not just talking about God putting rainbows in your life and you know, giving you everything you want and making sure you got a speedboat and doves landing on your shoulder, or people feeding you grapes or whatever, right? And you start to get squirmy because you thought, well, man, if I get invested in Christianity, it's going to make my life happy and easy and everything's going to be fun. And yet in Matthew 10, Jesus says, all men will hate you because of me. He says, parents will try and kill their children, and children will try and kill parents. They're going to drag you in front of their magistrates. They're going to lock you in their prisons. They're going to call you the devil, and you shouldn't be surprised by it, because that's the very same thing they called me. If you follow me, you should expect to be treated the way I was. And we look at that, and we go, well, this is really hard. It's not wrong. You're not wrong. If you're squirming in your seat, and you're going, this is really hard, you're absolutely right. It is hard. It's hard, but it's good hard but good. Jesus says, what am I going to say? Take me out of this? What am I going to say? Get me out of this? Why would I say that this is the very purpose for which I came? And the same thing is true for us. You might be tempted to say, God, get me out of this. Get me out of this difficulty. Or you might be tempted to abandon the faith entirely. No way. I'm not going to die to myself. I'm not going to reject this worldly life. I'm not going to serve somebody else. I'm not going to follow him. But then the answer is the same as Jesus' answer. He says, well, why would I say I'm not going to do this? It's the very purpose for which I came. You know that your purpose and my purpose on this planet is to glorify God, and the key to glorifying God is not our morality, it's not our righteousness, because we don't have any of that, it's not our intellect. The key to glorifying God is death and sacrifice. Is it hard? Yeah but good. There's all kinds of reward. Jesus even weaves that in here. Look at the things he says about the result of this. Look at 24 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Is dying to yourself hard? Yes, but it's the way fruit is produced. You want your life to be productive? You want your life to count for something and to be worth something? Death is the path to productivity. Look at what else he says. Keep reading, 25. In 25, he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Eternal life, bearing fruit. Not only eternal life and bearing fruit are the results of this life. Look at 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Another reward of this death to ourselves is the very presence of Christ, that he is present and available, that he is with us, that we are never alone. Remember, the seed by itself is solitary. But Jesus says, whoever serves me, I'll be with him. He'll be with me. We'll be together. So the presence of Christ, eternal life, much fruit. Look at what else it says in 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. 
We all recognize that Jesus was honored in the resurrection, that Jesus sacrificed himself and the Father honored him in the empty tomb. That's why we celebrate the empty tomb. But here's what Jesus is saying to us this morning. In the same way that the Father honored Christ through the empty tomb and the resurrection, when you and I die to ourselves, when we turn from this worldly life, when we serve Christ and we follow him up the hill to the cross, the Father will honor himself in our sacrifice as well. You felt it. I know you have. We all have. Those moments where you give sacrificially. Those moments where you submit your own will to serve someone else. Those moments where you go and you give and no one thanks you. Those moments where you pour yourself out for the good of other people. You can feel the honor of the Father in that, can't you? And you think, why don't I do this all the time? It's a great question. We taste it a little bit. We taste that self-sacrifice and we go, this feels great. It feels awesome after Thanksgiving dinner to be the one who washes the dishes while everybody else goes and takes a nap. It's hard work, but there is something that stirs in you that goes, this feels great to serve my family like this. But then two hours later, we're fighting for the remote, right? We've tasted it. The honor of the Father when we align with his purpose for us, which is to glorify him by laying ourselves down. The problem is we forget too quick. You young people, you want to live an edgy life? You want to live a life on the edge. You want to live a counterculture existence. You older people, you want to live a life on the edge. You want to live counterculture. You want to do something edgy with your life? Die to yourself. It's the most edgy thing you can do. There is no one else in this world and no one else in this culture who's championing that cause. And I think many of us, we come to these worship services and we go, I didn't feel anything. It didn't feel like something. I want, to feel, I want an experience. I want to feel it. I want to feel something. You, you want to feel the honor of the Father in your life? Give yourself away. It's not going to be about a song played louder or softer or faster or slower. It's not going to be just about an emotional experience. It's going to be about being aligned with God's purposes for us. Is it hard? Yes, but it's good. And if you and I began to embrace this teaching of Jesus, our city would change. Our families would change. Our neighborhood would change. Jesus says, what am I going to say? Get me out of this? No, this is the purpose for which I came. He says, rather than saying, get me out of this, I say, Father, glorify your name. That's verse 28. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God speaks and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And you know what? He's not just talking about the resurrection. I don't believe that God the Father is affirming just the, the glorification of the resurrection. I think he's looking to us as well and saying, I will glorify my name again and again and again, not only through Jesus, but through the followers of Jesus. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. There are all kinds of people you can read in the text that don't understand what they've heard. But there's at least one that does because John writes it down, Right? Somebody on that hillside hears the voice from heaven and doesn't think it's thunder, doesn't think it's an angel, but knows it's God the Father saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And Jesus then responds and says, this voice has come not for me, but for you. Why for them? Why for their sake? Because he knew that here and there, we would need to know that the Father put a sort of a divine exclamation point on the end of this teaching. Jesus, at the end of the text, talks about the, the crucifixion, that his hour has come. He repeats that. The hour has come, what, for, for the crossroads of the world, the judgment of the world at the cross. The ruler of the world be cast out, the, the, the destruction of, uh, and the, the victory over Satan. 32, and I, when I am lifted up, the glorification of Christ through his death will draw all people to myself, the invitation to the entire world. We are at the crossroads, he says. 
And the people are like, we thought you were going to stick around. What, what are you talking about being lifted up? And he says, look, I'm shining my light. Look at this last piece. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus has made it as clear as he possibly can to them and to you and I. I don't know if you thought about it yet, but why does this particular sermon come after the arrival of the Greeks? The Greeks come, and we don't even see Jesus really talk to the Greeks. Why does he give this sermon here? Let me tell you. The Greeks come, and they, and they ask the question that all of the world needs to ask. The Greeks come, and they say, we just want to see Jesus. And as he's done so many times in the Gospel of John, Jesus looks through their temporal question to the greater picture, to the greater question, and the need for all, man to, all mankind to have Christ revealed. And he recognizes that the way that Christ will be revealed in the ages to come is through Philip and Andrew and the Greeks and me and you and our church and the body of Christ around the world that we have the opportunity to reveal Christ in our death and in our hatred of this worldly life and in our service and in our followership that we put Christ on. In fact, that's why in first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, and I'll finish here, 2 Corinthians 4.10. In 2 Corinthians 4.10, Paul says that we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What's he saying? That when we die to ourselves, when we reject this worldly life, when we serve him with abandon, when we follow him up the hill to the cross and die, that we not only carry the death of Christ in us, but we make manifest the life of Christ that the world can see. You want this city to be changed? You want this church to be changed? I do. You want our neighborhoods to be changed? You want your family to be changed? You want this world to be changed? It happens when you and I recognize that the world is asking to see Jesus, whether they know it or not. And the way they can see him is when we become like him in his death. When we die. When we take that potential and we actually do something with it. Would you pray with me this morning? <laughs> God, I want so desperately for us to be a people of sacrifice. And I, I want so desperately to be a man of sacrifice. I'll start here. I want to be this guy. I want to live this life on the edge. I want my followership of you to be radical. And I don't want to do it by myself. I want to do it with my family. I want to do it with this community. I want to make a difference in this place, in this time, that we would reveal Christ. And you would be glorified in our death. Give us the courage and the wisdom, the discernment to pick up your mantle and to carry it, to carry in us your death and your life, that the Father would be honored as we lay ourselves down. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.